Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, really good to be back with you this morning. Told you every time I'm here, I love making the drive down uh, to Christ the King. Gary mentioned I uh, am the campus minister at Reform University Fellowship. This is starting my third year there now. They told me when I accepted this call to be a a pastor in this presbytery, to be the pastor uh, on campus, they told us, uh, expect four years of kind of this leadership learning curve. They said the first year or so, you will be unconsciously incompetent. So you'll be bad at everything you do, but you don't, you won't realize you're bad. And so you'll be full of great advice and slick techniques and you'll know exactly what you want to do, but you really don't know what you're doing. You're unconsciously incompetent. And they said, eventually, because of feedback from other people or your own weakness or having to do the same thing over and over again, you'll eventually begin to realize you'll become very conscious of your incompetence. And so they say that second stage of, of leadership growth is being consciously incompetent. You're painfully aware of all that you don't know how to do and can't do. And that gives way eventually to what I'm beginning to feel for the first time now, almost three years in, which is uh, conscious competence. It's the first time in three years I felt like, I, I think I'm beginning to figure this out a little bit better. I've done campus ministry a decade or so at different campuses in different capacities, but it's for the first time I'm beginning to think, I know why I want to do this and not that. I know why I want to adjust this and not do it the way we've done it in the past. So that unconscious incompetence that gave way to a conscious incompetence is giving way to a little bit of me being aware of, I like this. I know what I'm doing a little bit better. I don't have to walk with my head down all the time now. But the fourth stage of that leadership curve is unconscious competence. You're so good at what you do, you're not aware of it. Everybody else is, but you don't think about it anymore. It's like when you become really good at dancing. Good dancers don't sit there on the dance floor thinking, I am killing it. This is awesome. Look at everybody else looking at me. You're unconsciously competent. You just, you're good at it and you don't think about it. Uh, what we're going to talk about this morning in this passage, you could, sit, you could apply those same categories to the Christian life. Unconsciously incompetent where we feel like we're all thumbs when it comes to taking the gospel into the nooks and crannies of everyday life or parenting or marriage or teaching or business uh, that, that gives way over time to more and more of a sense of competence. But all of us are kind of in different places in our lives. We're inhabiting all four of those areas at the same time, which makes for a confusing life. Paul Paul uses the words weakness and strength, not conscious, uh, not incompetence and competence so uh, that's kind of the way he's coming at this but it's from romans 14 and it has this question whether you are a mature strong godly christian who's been one for decades or whether you are an immature new perhaps christian or maybe you've been a christian for a long time but have maybe been in a church that hasn't been particularly nourishing and for the first time you're hearing the depths of the bible explained paul's question to you is weak christians How do you view your stronger brothers and sisters? Strong Christians, how do you view those here that you disagree with that are wrong, simply? How do you react to that? The passage is Romans chapter 14. There's a little printout in your bulletin, but I'm going to read an abbreviated chunk of that and a little bit of chapter 15. So listen to me. You can follow along for the first part. But this is the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord to the Romans. It's the word of the Lord to you this morning. God anticipated where you are this morning when he inspired these words. So hear this as an urgent and timely message from your God. 
He says in chapter 14, As for the one, the Christian who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Because one person believes he can eat anything. This was kind of the issue of the day that people were divided on. One person believes he can eat anything, while the weak person says only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then in chapter 15, the first seven verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That's plural. Failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ didn't please himself. But that, but that is it, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Remember I said God anticipated where you would be this morning? Paul says it right here. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you even this morning, to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and we rest this morning because you are the God who has welcomed us in Christ. You, the strong one, have paid attention to the weak ones. You, the holy one, has given thought for the unholy. You, the righteous, has invited the unrighteous. And so, Lord, even this morning, would you continue to grow us by your spirit? You are a God who loves music, not noise. And Lord, when each of us at our own place of competence or incompetence, strength and weakness, when each of us is kind of living our own lives, it creates noise and it displeases you. But we know because you tell us your heart sings when your people sing with one voice, live in harmony. Jesus, for your sake, for your pleasure, make that true this morning. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Someone asked me just yesterday, Ben, are you a runner? I said, only when something's chasing me. But I used to be a runner. I used to run all the time. When I was in high school, I was a part of the cross-country team, and that meant that every day after school, me and about 40 other people on the team, guys and girls, would go out and just scatter through all the neighborhoods around our high school and run for, uh, for, for hours some days. And uh, we, our team had a pretty wide variety of talent there. We had, at the time I was on the team, we had the record-setter state champion. Um, that's fun to be on a, a, a team with a state champion, <laughs> live in his shadow for four years. And we also had people who, they finished races so late, you wondered if they were, like, picking up trash off the course or if they were actually finishing. So we had that big of a variety of talent on the team. And so when we would go out for our daily practices... Uh, that team would kind of break apart into faster runners and weaker runners. 
But my coach, Coach Hines, would, he would berate us every day. He'd say, men, cross country is a team sport, not an individual race. And I am the proud owner of a there's no I in team shirt. And we would have team dinners and we would have team banquets. But if you are a runner too, or if you've been a runner in the past, you know there is seldom a more lonely, painful, and isolating experience than long-distance running. It's very difficult. Even though someone's shouting in your ear, this is a team sport, you're scored as a team, you perform as a team, you train as a team, everything in you is saying, I'm alone. This is just me, my performance, my pace, my records. And so when we would go out for those practices, uh, the stronger runners... Uh, would immediately break off. They would kind of run at whatever pace felt natural for them that day. If it was a great day, they ran fast. If they wanted a light day, they ran a little slower. But the weaker runners were running at the fastest pace they were able to. But what that meant is that you always had two groups. There was a front pack and there was a back pack, and you would eventually lose sight of the front pack. Here's the consequences of that. My times, when I started as a runner my junior year, were the exact same as when I finished my cross-country experience as a senior two years later. Uh, And so the people kind of in the middle of the pack or the back of the pack on our team never improved. Why? Because we only had ourselves to run with. All of the stronger runners, the better coached runners, the more talented runners were never there with us. And so we were left to our own resources as they kind of excelled off into the sunset. Now the girls' team, by the way, that brought up a lot of resentment and judgment amongst the team. Not a very healthy culture because the weaker runners were always judging the stronger runners for not being team players, for kind of pursuing their own limelight and and, and leaving the team behind. But the stronger runners resented the weaker runners. What's up with you guys? Pick it up. And so the team dynamic began to fall apart. Keep in mind, this is a metaphor for the Christian life. The girls cross-country team at Wheeler High School, thankfully, was very different. When the girls would go out to run, um, the stronger girls, you would see them all the time. It was, it was fun to watch them run together. The group stayed together, and the stronger girls who were at the front of the, the group every day out running would circle back around every now and then to the back of the group. And they would either just run with those girls because when you're in pain running, it is very encouraging to have someone come up and run beside you. Or talk to them, or they would work on pace. Hey, pick up your shoulders a little bit less, you'll get less cramps. Pace your breathing a little bit better. Pick up the stride. And so stronger girls up front who had better resources, more talent, consistently came back to the back of the pack and they began to rub off on the weaker girls. And so the, start, the times for the girls team at the beginning of the season and the end, there was improvement, there was growth. Incompetence was giving way to competence. Weakness was giving way to strength because of how the strong treated the weak And how the weak began to view the strong in light of that. Music happened on that team, not noise, like the first team. This is the kind of stuff Paul is talking about that is incredibly important, that is crucial today for us in this room. How we relate to other Christians, stronger, weaker. The first point is this. The Christian life is a team sport that often feels like an individual sport. Even as I was talking You're probably making connections already of how the Christian life, the scriptures say it, your pastors say it, your small groups say it, your parents say it. We're a community, we're a body. Do you more often feel that? 
Or do you more often feel the isolation of it? My struggles are just mine. Nobody else knows what this is like. Nobody else's marriage is where mine is. Nobody else has a job that they hate driving to every morning that I do. Or, I need to pretend that I know more about the Bible because I really don't know that much. I don't know how the pieces fit together, but it seems like everybody else does. You see how, though it is a team sport, a body, a community, a living organism, it can feel very isolating and alone. And in the same way as that cross-country team. Perhaps you feel like you've hit your stride. It's okay to say that. The Bible's very honest that there's mature Christians and immature, godly and ungodly, uh, those who are growing in grace. It's a process. Perhaps you've hit your stride. You're one of the stronger Christians in the room. Very aware of your weakness, yes, humble. But you're aware this is beginning to feel a little bit more like second nature. It's a little bit more fun. Conscious competence or unconscious competence. But the question for you is, have you run off and left the weak behind? Because sometimes they're annoying or their weakness is frustrating or obnoxious. Where are you? Whether you're weak or whether you're strong in relation to other Christians in this room. Even if you're new. Military town, everyone's always coming in. People are always leaving. Where are you in relation to other Christians? The church is filled with a variety of people, obviously. Some of us are stronger than others. Some of us more mature. Some of us have been around the church a lot longer. Perhaps you've been raised in Christianity. Uh, These things aren't new to you anymore. You've had decades to connect dots. You have more experiences. You have more scars. You've suffered more. You've lived more. You know Jesus more intimately. And there's others on the opposite side of that. You're still piecing those things together. You feel like an infant. Also, okay, the Bible gives space to be an infant in Christ who's growing. But you feel that way. Again, Paul's bringing all of this up because he's saying, what are you doing? What are we doing with this disparity amongst us? Maturity disparities, knowledge disparities, Christian freedom disparities and differences. Left to yourself, apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit, here's what you will find in your heart and in your relationships. Judgment and resentment. It's here, it's in me, it's in all of you. I find that refreshing. God gets you. He's not naive. He doesn't blush when you confess your sins to him. Uh, Paul gets where these people are, and so he's speaking into that place of how we can tend to look down our nose Maybe at the richer people in the church or the poorer people. And he speaks into that. Will the stronger ones run ahead with little thought for the weak? Or will the weak resent the strong for not caring? Real quick, let's zoom into this point. What is a weak Christian? What does it mean to be weak in faith? This is where your little handout of the entire chunk of uh, Romans 14 will come in handy. Because I skipped over some of the the mechanics and anatomy of the issue in Paul's day, which was what kind of food can you eat? But at a 30,000 foot level, here's generally what a weak faithed Christian is. Think about it this way in a picture. Think about a piece of meat that you rub some marinade on 10 minutes before you throw it on the grill versus a piece of meat that you've been marinating in a bowl of marinade for two days in your fridge. And two days later, you throw it on the grill. 
Compare how those two pieces of meat are going to taste. Both, you're going to be able to recognize the flavor of the marinade in both. But in one, it will be kind of a superficial coating, uh, a, 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 a faint presence of that marinade. But the other, it is penetrated deep down into it. It is saturated. You could say a strong Christian is one who is marinated in the scriptures, in the gospel, in the love of God in Christ, in how that, what implications that has for our lives. And so when you cut a strong Christian, what happens is that it's this fully saturated flavor comes out. For a weaker Christian, perhaps it's that a little bit shallower penetration of that. Still growing, still flavor increasing, but a little bit shallower of a penetration. And so for weaker faith Christians, there's a pattern. Paul identifies here, they tend to be, we tend to be, the more zealous and passionate sometimes. On on different issues, peripheral issues. These people in this passage with these food items were extremely passionate. These were the kind of debates that made your blood pressure raise. If you're a confrontational person and you heard someone after church talking about it, you would go get in on the conversation and voices would raise. If you're non-confrontational, you would make a beeline for the door. These are what those kind of conversations were like. And these people were zealous about it. Weak faith Christians, all of us, when we're at that point, one time or another, tend to major on minors. And we insist that everybody else majors on the minors that we have chosen to overinflate to all-encompassing importance, to equal importance with the gospel. And Paul is saying that that's dangerous. Weak Christians, remember what I said earlier about unconscious incompetence? Weak Christians almost always see themselves as the stronger ones in the room. The more dedicated, the more devoted, the more diligent. It's an incredible irony. Stronger Christians usually feel like the weak ones. Weaker Christians often feel like the strong ones. Unconscious incompetence. Unconscious competence. So what would be some of these issues today really quick? Well, the Bible doesn't... uh, Some of the issues, I guess you could say today, are ones that you and I have both felt. Perhaps this would get a little bit uncomfortable because I said earlier, Paul presumes that you and I have been, are, or will be weak in some of these areas. Churches I've been in in the past, uh, some of these issues come up this way. Cultural involvement. There tends to be a, a, a wider variety of opinions within the church about how a Christian faithfully and in a godly way engages with culture. Movies, entertainment, cultural holidays like Halloween. But have you ever been at a place where the tangent that everybody's become fixated on is one of these tangents of cultural engagement? The gospel's reduced down to, is it right or wrong for your kids to dress up as a Mr. Incredible or something and to go out and ask neighbors for candy? I'm not diminishing or downplaying the importance of that for your conscience. But I am pressing and Paul is pressing on these issues and saying, have you forced this law on everybody else? Perhaps have you taken what is perhaps weakness, changed it into strength and held other people to that account? Matters of personal preference that we turn to, parenting methods. Now that we have a child, we know, I I didn't realize parenting is a minefield. But there's some strong opinions on how long you breastfeed or whether you do formula or not or how you discipline or how you have a devotional life or spiritual life in your family. And it can feel like you're, 
it can feel very tense to begin talking about parenting with other people that you may not know because you realize, am I going to be judged for this? Or am I going to be resented for, a, a, for a, what seems to be a flippant way of parenting? Political views. Perhaps that's a horse that is already dead and that we don't need to beat anymore. It tends to be one of the easier, lower-hanging fruits of a sermon in Romans 14. Hear me. Paul says right before this chapter, politics is incredibly important. The gospel applies to politics. The gospel applies to how Christians are civically engaged. The question that Paul says after Romans 13 is in Romans 14. And he says, how do you relate to those in the church who differ from your beliefs? He's not, he's not saying we all have to just agree. He's not saying paper over our differences. He engages them. He allows there to be room for differences. But he says, how are you relating to the people who believe the exact opposite of you? Stronger ones, have you left them in the dust and resentment? They're holding us back. Weaker ones, do you judge the stronger ones? They're elitist. They don't care about us. They've got it all wrong. There's tons of others. Drinking for Christians. Birth controls for Christians who are married, whether that's appropriate or not. What's the role of psychiatry or psychologists in seeking counseling or help like that or medication? Homeschooling or public schooling or private schooling? What method of dating is the right method of dating? It's huge. And it's an ever-growing list of this kind of stuff. Uh, Matters, in a sense, some of these matters of conscience. It can even get to the seemingly absurd. My wife's uh, roommate in college grew up in a missionary family in Kenya And uh, for her, the thermostat setting was a matter of conscience. Uh, She came home at the end of the day, and this is Georgia in August where it's 90% humidity and 100 degrees, and they would have the AC set on 70. And she was scandalized by that. How could we be such poor stewards of the resources God has given us to, in luxury, run the air conditioning to 70 degrees? And she'd switch it back up to 85 or 90. And they would come home, and I guarantee you, (laughs) you get in the door and you realize... Stronger, stronger and weaker issues come out of your heart. Resentment is what came out of their hearts. And they had to talk about it. They had to work through it and say, we need to learn how to relate to each other. God has not divinely revealed that 68 is the heavenly mandated thermostat setting. He's given room here. And so they had to sit down and do what Paul's talking about. Weaker, stronger. Are we coming together? Are we rubbing off on each other? Are we circling back around to those at the back of the pack or in the middle of the pack? And talking, and growing, and forbearing, even with the failings of the weak. Giving space for matters of conscience. Again, Paul's, Paul doesn't duck the controversy. He doesn't say these issues aren't important. He doesn't say the Halloween question is not a legitimate one. He says, what are you doing with the other Christians who've come down on the other side of it? Do you enforce it upon them as well? Do you judge them or resent them? Do you make, do you accommodate yourself for the consciences of others? Notice the solution that Paul throws out. This is not in the part that you have printed, but in chapter 15, verse 1. Paul begins to move towards getting a little bit more tangible in what do we do about this? What do you do in those thermostat situations? Perhaps that hit closer to home with the married folks in the room. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is a big deal for this reason. 
Paul considers himself a stronger runner. And Paul calls out the weaker Christians and he says, what you believe is unbiblical and incorrect in this situation. Jesus has died and risen. The kingdom of God, he says in verse 7 of chapter 14, is not about menu items. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. And so you think, therefore, because Paul identifies the weaker brother and he calls it for what it is, you would think that Paul goes after the weaker brother and says, you need to catch up with the rest of the pack. But he doesn't say that. That would have been like the guys cross country team. Get it together, guys. Catch up. Paul goes to the front and he says, hey, guys, hey, girls, see these people back here? You got to slow down a little bit. You got to run back there. Run and step with them. Run and pace with them. So he says the stronger have an obligation to bear with the weak. It's to the stronger that he says, welcome the weak brothers and sisters. Don't quarrel over opinions with the weaker ones. He says it's not helpful. Don't put stumbling blocks. Don't put things in the way that are going to cause them to fall. If you do, you're no longer walking in love. The question comes back to this. In your normal weeks, your normal days, are you running the Christian life as a team with care for your brothers and sisters? Or have you fallen back or run forward into an individual race, consumed with the pain of the run, the isolation, the loneliness, or the pride, but not aware of the others on the field? Here's Paul's final verdict before we push ahead to look at how God treats our weakness. He says, the weak among us haven't seen how the gospel affects all the areas of their lives. So that's one verdict. The weak Christian hasn't seen how the gospel affects all of life. But the strong Christian is tempted to not see how the gospel affects how we treat the weak. For the weak Christian, what they don't see is how the gospel affects all of their life. For the strong, what we don't see is how the gospel affects how we treat the weak. This is important. This is key. So what do we do to change? Because if we're just stuck here with diagnosis, Christ the King, your community group, your neighborhood, your family, your marriage, your parenting, is going to remain a divided group of isolated runners competing for your own medals. You will resent. We will judge. So what do we do? Here's the second and final point. We are, we are coached towards change. And you will coach others the way you think you've been coached by God. Paul shifts in both chapter 14 and 15 to talking about how God has treated us in our weakness. Two other quick stories about my cross-country team to drive this point home. We'd be out for our daily runs, the guys team, and Coach Hines, I remember he had this little like 1990 Toyota Camry. Tiny little car, little four-cylinder engine that sounded like a kitten purring when it would drive. And we would be out for our run, but Coach Hines would be in his little tiny car with his little tiny horn behind us, honking, saying like, Coppage, get up there. Smith, pick it up. Get up to the front. I mean, he would literally drive beside us and honk. And then he'd drive off and maybe go get a drink somewhere and come back a little bit later and honk some more. Get up. Why'd you fall back? And as you can imagine, it killed the morale of the team. And that culture of coaching took hold. And I think it contributed to why there were such divisions on the team. Coach Ravenscroft was the girls' coach. Coach Ravenscroft coached very differently. 
every afternoon he was on that hot track, lacing up, stretching, and went out running with the girls. Every day he ran with those girls. He's the one that taught the stronger ones to go back to the weaker ones. He's the one that endured the pain with them. He's the one who sweated with them. He's the one who didn't just observe them from a distance shouting, get up here and catch up. He is the one who was with them in that. And so if he wanted the pace of the group to increase, he would slowly increase his pace. That's how he coached. And that culture of coaching also took hold in that team. And that's why those girls improved throughout the season. So Paul's question to you is this. Not just where are you in relation to other Christians, but perhaps where you are in relation to other Christians has more to do with this question. How do you see God coaching you in your weakness, in your incompetence? How is he coaching you? Is he Coach Hines, who's in his car, distant from your life, distant from your troubles, distant from your pressure, honking, pushing, yelling, why aren't you up here? Pick up the pace. Or does he coach like Coach Ravenscroft, lacing up every day, running with his people, running alongside of his people, leading his people, sweating with his people, sharing both the joy and the sorrow of the journey with his people. How does God coach you in your weakness? You know in your head how he coaches you. God is intent to remind you because he knows you forget. So Jesus says, if I'm the shepherd of a hundred sheep, let's do a math lesson. One leaves, where do I go? With the 99 that have run on ahead or with the one straggler who's playing in the dirt? You know where he goes, to the one weak. This wasn't anything new all the way back to Isaiah. He promised that the Messiah, when he comes, this Messiah will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. That is how gentle he is with weakness. That is how tender and careful he is with his people's infirmities and incompetence and failings and weakness. Paul goes on to say explicitly, he, uh, Jesus is gentle with the failings of the weak, that he encourages the faint-hearted, that he bears patiently with the weak, and in 1 Timothy that he is perfect in patience. Not too many attributes of God that he draws attention to say God is perfect in this attribute. Obviously, he's perfect in every attribute. But it's his patience that Paul draws a specific attention to. God is perfect in his patience. Jesus is perfect in his patience. The last thing that Paul says, how do you see God coaching you, is how do you see him meeting you in your guilt, in your sin? in your past, in your regret. He says in chapter 14, God has welcomed you. He upholds the weak one. He helps him stand. In verse 15, Christ died for you and earlier for the ungodly. What did God do when he saw you? What does God do when he sees you in your weakness? He welcomes you. He meets you there. And he coaches you forward out of that. 
He shares all of his resources the way Coach Ravenscroft shared all of his talent, all of his knowledge, all of his strength with those girls. And it began slowly to rub off on them. He is coaching all of us, all of you, both out of running off ahead of the pack with no thought for your weaker brothers and sisters. And he is coaching the weaker among us to major on the gospel of grace and to minor on more peripheral issues. Coach Ravenscroft allowed these girls to affect him. God allows you to affect him. We're about to partake of a meal where it is a picture of the living God who has allowed you to affect him. That is not a God distant in a car honking at you. That is a God with you, for you, beside you. That is the gospel that we major on. That is the gospel that grows us out of these other things, these other weaknesses. Would you pray for me? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do pray to you, the strong one. You have looked upon our weakness not with resentment, not with scorn or ridicule, but you've looked upon our weakness and you moved towards it. Not only did you take on weak flesh of a man, not only did you die the weak death on a cross to redeem us, but you rose up in glory and we aren't, you don't just strengthen us. You, by your Holy Spirit, have united us eternally with the omnipotent one, with the strong one. And so we are only strong by virtue of being united to you. Change us, Holy Spirit. Would we be like you, circling back to the middle and the back of the pack to bear patiently with our brothers and sisters, to love them where they are, and to love them beyond where they are, to further them as you further us. We ask all of this, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen.